Some of you will know who uh, Alfred Nobel is, and if you don't, he's the, the fellow who is uh, um, responsible for the Nobel Prizes that get handed out every year with the, the million-dollar uh, prize money that goes along with it. I think there's five of them, if I'm not mistaken. There's literature and science and peace, and there's medicine, I think. I can't remember what the fifth one is, but, but the Nobel Peace Prize is kind of the, the one that uh, sort of gets everyone's attention. You might not know this about his life. Some of you may, but he started out, uh, he was a scientist, and uh, he came from a, line, a long line of scientists. I think his uncle and his father as well, and his brother too. And, um, and he started out attempting to find a way to stabilize uh, nitroglycerin from a, for a vast array of, of different purposes. But a, along the way, uh, sort of the family business caught up with him, as it were, and the enticement of wealth caused him to, to take and use his scientific acumen, if you will, uh, to, make a more de- to make more deadly bombs and weapons. And so he was the one who created essentially a, the stabilizing dynamic of nitroglycerin, and, and you ended up with TNT. Uh, and it was also used to make roads and, you know, push mountains out of the way so trains could come through and bridges and all of those kinds of things, and, you know, lots of, of uh, good things but there was always a, a cloud of death around him. There's a famous story of how in 1888, his brother Ludwig died, and a newspaper made the mistake uh, of publishing uh, an obituary of Alfred. They thought it was Alfred that passed. Um, and the caption, one of the captions that was a part of this article said that the merchant of death is dead. Uh, which caused Alfred to go into deep, deep reflection and have a deep desire uh, to not have himself remembered that way. And so he rewrote his will and his estate, and he gave a high percentage of, I think, something like 94, 95% of his estate. Without his family knowing, he gave it away to create this foundation, which now have become the Nobel Prizes, so that he would be remembered in a different way. Here's the point to this opening story is that anytime anything good is produced, just about unequivocally, it can be turned towards evil. Evil is lurking right there in its wake to twist, bend to its desire, and destroy whatever is in its path. That is uh, where the narrative of chapter 2 leads to, the potential for God's beautiful provision and provisions in creation to be used in destructive ways, especially as we near and come to the end of, you know, there's like this warning in chapter 2 that we read, and then we see it come to fruition in chapter 3. Um, there is a switch, though, and, I, and you probably wouldn't have caught it unless you've been taught this before and knew about this, or maybe there's a footnote in your Bible, but there's a switch here as we move from the distinct recounting in chapter 1 of the how, the when, the why creation happened. You know, there's order to it, a formulaic quality, if you will. You know, the mind of God envisions, the mouth of God speaks, it comes to pass. You know, man is tasked with its care. God declares it good, and then he rests when it's finished. And that kind of leads us up to chapter 2. It's kind of tick, 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 tick like that. It's very orderly. God in chapter 1 is Elohim, which contains the idea of God's creative power as well as his authority and sovereignty. But the tenor and tone of chapter 2 changes things. 
We are, we are told in verse 4, this is the account of. And here's where you could read there. You could, you know, these are the times of, the, the story of, if you will. The same language is used in other places in Genesis and other parts of the Old Testament. There's an example in chapter 6 when it says, this is the account of Noah. And it goes on to, you know, to list his offspring, his, his genealogy, if you will, his family. And they, and they dive into the story. This is the account of. There's a switch here in chapter 2. Not only that, we are now introduced for the very first time to uh, Yahweh. If you are looking at your English Bible, I don't know how it would be in Spanish, but Yahweh is spelled Y-H-W-H. And, and, uh, and in your English Bible, that would be L-O-R-D, but in caps, in small caps, all caps. Uh, and that is to tell us that the word there for God is Yahweh, which in strict Judaism, they, they don't even, you know, they don't write it down on the board, on a paper. Uh, you know, they don't speak it out loud. It's too revered. It's too holy. And later it had the word, you know, the vowels added to it. So it became Jehovah, which is, you know, probably something you're more familiar with. But this name of God is much more personal in nature the God who communicates to man, makes covenants with man. More than creator and sustainer, he is communicator and covenant maker, blesser of, for man. He's the, the personal God towards man. I use that picture, that famous Michelangelo painting on the title slide. I don't know if we can, can we put that title slide back up, Gustavo, for half a second? You'll, you'll recognize uh, this bit from the, the famous painting, and it's been stylized a bit, but the hand, of, the hand of God reaching towards man. This is the personal God that gets introduced to us here in Genesis chapter 2, the very first use of that uh, title for God. And this shift is like, this shift is really important. Uh, so many of us have inherited, uh, for whatever reason, a view of God that is inconsistent, I think, sometimes with his character, particularly his covenant-keeping aspect. He is not a contract-keeping God. That's different. A contract says, like if you think of, and I'm going to illustrate something from the sports world here in a minute, but if you think of a contract in the sporting world, I will pay you X amount of dollars if you do this for me, you know, a manager to a player or, or whatever, and, and the contract is broken when the player stops doing what he's asked to do. I mean, that's a contract. You do this, I'll do that. A covenant is, is something different because the partners in a covenant are trustworthy. At least in this case, God is the trustworthy partner. If he says it, it is true. Not true if we do our part too, but he is a covenant-keeping God. So his part will always be true now. True. Many of us will walk away, wander away, and break covenant with God, if, you, if I can use that language. He never will. Because he says it, it's true. That's who he is. It's part of his character. And so it's important to understand that. He'll never let us down. And of course, lots of us have experience um, with our own earthly fathers in terms of, you know, being let down. I often say, we do not have a father in heaven, we have the father in heaven. And that's the covenant-keeping Yahweh God that we're introduced to here in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is so awesome because it shows us the way things were supposed to be. The archetype of it all, if you will. God's perfect plan before it gets all messed up in chapter 3. 
Here's the sporting metaphor. It's kind of like a coach drawing it all up on the chalkboard. You know, pick your sport, basketball, football, you know, soccer, or you probably thought soccer when I said football, but just where I come from, it's different. You know, but think of a team sport and the coach draws it up on a chalkboard. You know, the play that will win the game, the perfect matchups that will ensure victory, the set plays that will control the flow of the game, all, all before the snap of the ball, right? Before the crack of the bat, the, the blowing of the whistle, all before the game starts. And then it all gets messed up because you include humans. <laughs> and they get on the field and, and now it all has to be adjusted. But here's the thing. Not only is he Yahweh, he still is Elohim. That part doesn't change. All-powerful, sustainer, and creator. He's all of these things. And you and I and could, uh, should hang on for the ride, I think. And we, here's the other part for the, us. We witness this all from the other side of the cross. So we can read back into this narrative with this view. It's like watching a tape of the game. Seeing the halftime adjustments that you know they made come to fruition. The player substitutions that secure the outcome. It is fascinating. And as we read and study it, it had better lead us to a few lessons about who this covenant-keeping God is. Or we run the risk of what I would just say is much pain, hurt, sorrow, despair, and miss out on all the other good things. Hope, encouragement, joy, security. All of the wonderful things that God provides. So, I'd like us to unpack this briefly, and I say briefly because there is so much here. We could unpack this for several weeks. In these few short minutes, I don't, I don't attempt to, to cover everything that may be popping up in your minds in terms of questions this morning. I, I would encourage you to, when you have a chance, read it over and over and over again and, and see you know, what God shows you about who He is. I have read and reread this numerous times these past weeks, and and it just seems to more just kind of, I'd call it bubbles up. It's just a fantastic passage of Scripture. There's just so much here. So here we go. Let's dive in a little bit. And uh, first I want us to see that what God provides sustains. What God provides sustains. Uh, look at the list of things in this chapter, and partly chapter 1, 2, that are under the care of man. He's, you know, he, he's given it to us for a blessing. And then stop and listen. You know, this is where you get to use your imaginations again. Stop and listen to the garden for a moment in your mind's eye. Listen. Actually listen. Scholars tell us that one of the key aspects of this garden, wherever it actually was, was that it was well watered. Well watered. That comes up here. There are four rivers mentioned. Two, we know where they are, the, the Tigris and the Euphrates. And the other two, there is a significant amount of uncertainty as to actually where they are and if they still exist in any form. They may have dried up or disappeared. Who knows? But the point is, water is the source of life here. Water is the source of life here. And of course, this water image shows up again in the Old Testament where we see, you know, water flowing out from the temple. And, you know, we see it in Psalms, the picture of well-watered, you know, areas where trees grow up and those kinds of things. Picture is, you know, kind of of the, the nourishment of God, if you will. And it was in abundance, so much so that I can imagine in my mind's eye that if you or I were there, we would not need to listen too hard to hear it, you know. You ever been out in the, in the forest or the woods or a park or something and 
you can hear water running. It's fantastic. That was happening here. This is a well-watered garden. And there's so much to unpack there in ter- terms of what God provides for us. I grew up in a, in a dry part of Canada. Um, I saw an old map one time from the early uh, 1930s, mid-1930s, that, that called the area. There was a swath across the map uh, where we lived and farmed. And on that map, it was called the Great Canadian Desert. <laughs> That's where I grew up. Um, but if it ever rained, you know, consistently, like well-watered, like what we're talking about here, lots of water, it would create a completely different dynamic. And, and I'm sure that you've probably seen pictures or, you know, time-lapse photography of, of deserts that spring into bloom as they flood or, and or are watered. Brown to green, literally, you know. I think that's what this place must have always been like well-watered and green, park-like. And, and not only water here, but listen to the descriptions of minerals like gold and onks, and, you know, which were used for carving and making you know, beautiful things and, and highly, highly valued in the ancient world. And of course, gold still, of course. And consider all the fruit trees and the vegetation. All of these put there to sustain and be used by and cared for by us. Uh, we often read the account here and focus on the one tree that caused all the trouble, right? And forget that there was another, the tree of life, the tree of life. This one was for them, it would appear. What exactly it did is a bit of a mystery. I've read some interesting theories. But it certainly presi- provided life, the extension or sustaining of life in some way. So much so that when they were barred from the garden and cast out of the garden, death became, you know, a reality, a palpable reality. And likely part of it was their inability to access the fruit of this one tree. Kind of forget about that tree a little bit. God provides what God provides, sustains. All of these things flow out and from a God who provides for. They flow out uh, of a God and from a God who blessed them. Flows out for his heart, for his children. All of this is for us to care for, nurture, tend, not to destroy and use up. That's a whole other sermon we could get into, but just, you know, to care for, not to, you know, suppress and consume. The point is this, God is still doing that, right? Uh, It is still a part of who he is because he never changes and what he provides sustains. Whether it's the physical world around us uh, that we are to care for, the relationships he provides us with, you know, we'll get into this a bit later, but think of the end of chapter 2 or the second half, I should say, and Adam and Eve. What about the literal air we breathe, the water we drink, ultimately the way in which he provides access back to the garden, uh, through what Paul calls the, you know, Adam's replacement in Romans chapter 5, or some call him the Jesus, now speaking of Jesus, the, the second Adam. Things get back to the way they're supposed to. Through one man's sin entered, through his disobedience, and through the obedience of one man, it is restored. God's still providing. That is basic gospel. 
Um, and I, you know, I was thinking about this too while I was writing this, that for some people they think of provision and all they think of is wealth and riches. For other people there's no such thing as wealth and riches because they don't have any of that. How do you think of provision then in those terms? Well, you think about the grand picture of what God is doing in and through us in the world and what will ultimately happen. We will all one day who call on the name of Jesus have an opportunity to live with him for eternity, the garden restored as it were. This basic gospel, but hopefully it does more than just uh, retell a story you may be very familiar with or even if you're not. Hopefully it allows you a new set of eyes to see what you've been blessed with, even if you think you haven't been blessed. This should turn our hearts toward the creator, sustainer, giver of all good things in a heart of worship and adoration. That's what I've attempted to do with some of the songs that we're singing this morning is just understand the gifts we've been given and just let our hearts echo that back. And because he is a covenant-keeping God, you can trust that he will continue to provide and care for you in this way. And again, particularly in and through Jesus. So we, what, we see that he, he provides uh, and it sustains. What he provides sustains. But also we see this. We see that what God proclaims is true. What God proclaims is true. And this one doesn't need too much unpacking, really. He warns them, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you will surely die. <laughs> the devil, the father of lies, turns this around later, you know, chapter 3, and says, did he really say that? You know, he's just trying to keep you from having what he has, being, knowing what he knows. There's so much here. Uh, but if you think about this, the amount that they were blessed with, apart from that one tree, was more than enough. More than enough. And yes, God did say that they should not eat it from it. He did say that. Yes, he did. That's the answer. And what God proclaims is true. The devil's reasoning was because God doesn't want you to be like him. God's reasoning seems to be one of protection and care. Something along the line of my, you know, like this. My plan is for you to have a life of abundance and satisfaction in what I have created for you. This tree opens up the door to dissatisfaction, despair, and ultimately death. Now, we could talk all day long because the immediate question that comes up is, why not just not put it there, God? Was it necessary? What does it exactly mean? We would be here all day. The literature is deep, long, wide. I think there is uh, something simpler that we maybe need to grasp here. Um, it was there, and they didn't listen. It was there, and they didn't listen. I, I have some ideas why myself, and I think primarily it has to do with the fact that God has given us choice, and we can choose to freely accept him and his love for us or not. Love that is not a choice is not love at all. For me, that is enough here. Um, the tree provided the reality of choice. And that may be the biggest aspect. You kind of distill it all down, all the literature to we were given choice and we can choose to love God. And they chose not to in that moment. Now the application here though is endless, right? You know, that, that's the, you know, here's the fill in the, the blank part. You know, did God really say blank, you know, yup, <laughs> he did. 
any action, idea, path, creative way to sin that you can imagine. Did God really say you shouldn't go there, do that, try that, taste that, engage in that, connect with that, relate to that? Yep. He did. He did. You may ask why, and more often than not, you already know the reasons, and yet we, I say we, still choose it. But when you place those questions of why and how come, and that's not fair, and and shouldn't I be free to do what I want, up against the narrative chapter 2, you and I should see things a little differently. We should remember that God has provided what we need to sustain us, and he did it that way because he wants what is best for us and wants us to be able to be with him, not apart from him. He's a jealous God in that sense for us to be able to have deep communion, intimacy with him. It really is that simple. Sin and the first failure of Adam and Eve has created the distance. But that is the place, that is not the place we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be in the garden of provision, sustenance, and blessings. Metaphorically now, as we think about intimacy with God through Jesus. One of the most significant and meaningful ways we see these things played out is in the area of human relationships, human relationships, God, God's provision, his, his promises and proclamations about what is true and what isn't find their most fulfilling and most destructive dimensions as humans relate to one another. And this is the last point I want to share today, that what God perfects will endure. What God perfects will endure. We have seen that what God provides sustains, what he proclaims is true, and now this, what he perfects will endure. Much has been said uh, about Adam and the creation of Eve. Why, how, when, as it all aligns with chapter 1 and the order of creation. Chapter 2 seems a little out of place. Questions about her role, subservience, her being the one the serpent spoke to first, etc. When God says it is, you know, it is not good for a man to be alone, does it reflect a mistake in, only making, the, in making the man first? And on and on the questions go. They're just, make your head spin. A couple things to say here that I believe and I think we ought to camp on a little bit. Number one, Eve's creation was not a reflection on the limit, I believe. Eve's creation was not a reflection on the limit or need to complete creation, but to further uh, perfect or reflect the God of creation. To perfect or reflect the perfection of who God is the reflection of that in his character. Chapter 2 is a narrative retelling of the reality of what happened on day 1 to 6. And on day 6, we are told, male and female, he created him. So I don't see a contradiction here. Uh, how this reflects the God of creation is that he is a God of community. Um, there is always a we assumed at the outset of Genesis, and the rest of Scripture affirms this. All three of them were there at the beginning. The Spirit hovered over the surface of the deep. God was there. He spoke. John tells us that Jesus and the Word is the Word of God and the agent of creation. All three were there at the beginning. So man in God's image means man was created for community to be together with others unmistakably. Secondly, Eve was the reflection of the command to be fruitful and multiply. Pretty hard for Adam to do that on his own, right? That's kind of obvious. But nowhere in the created order is there a reason to reason that. 
since man was made first and that he was commanded to rule over them, is a woman to be ruled by a man? I think the language is clear. She is his helpmate, the one who completes him, rounds him out, brings to the table what he and they need together. So if someone uh, tried to convince you of that idea from this text, I would dispute that outright. And, and, I'm con- and it's, it's not, as far as I'm concerned, it's not helpful at all to take that stance that somehow that puts the woman in a subservient position because she was created second. I don't think the language here supports that. Thirdly, I don't think that this text teaches that everyone should be married, okay? That for every man, God created a soulmate. That every woman and man are incomplete until they find that person that completes them. Belief systems and ideas like that are really very difficult to sustain if you read and study the whole of Scripture inclusively. And besides that, really, really painful for those who are single and remain that way by choice or for whatever other reason. It's the same. It's similar to saying like all married people should have children. That you can't sustain that ideal in Scripture either. You wouldn't believe how many times, uh, how many difficult conversations my wife and and I have had over the years of ministry the amount of hurt single people feel, the shunning and hurtful things that people say to each other, you know, how, how groups in the church seem to, rightly or wrongly, I mean, people, single people feel as though they're being shunned by these groups, whether it's true or not. It's just something that exists in the church. What I do think this passage uh, illustrates clearly is that the perfection illustrated and attained in creation is that mankind was not meant to live in isolation. Hear me this morning. Mankind was not meant to live in isolation. The church is the greatest or should be uh, the greatest model of this. It's likely why that in the New Testament, uh, the language of bride is used because it is the archetype of it all. Perfect communion. But we all need each other. I could rattle off for you uh, embarrassingly Numerous times where I've been isolated from community, isolated myself, I should say, uh, not getting along well with my wife, not submitting to what I would call a band of brothers, feeling alone that I have, and feeling alone that I have found the question of, you know, you know, did God really say that? You know, feeling so alone and then having that question settle on my mind, rattling around in, in the space between my ears way more than it should have. I'll never forget a time, um, three of us, um, myself and two pastor friends sitting in a, in a pub, and one guy started to tell and share with us about the relationship choices he was making with a lady in his church. And we both looked at him and gently reminded him of the danger and that he needed to choose some different actions. And he chose not to listen to us, and his marriage ended. <sighs> Let's wrap this up with a reminder of what we have learned today, folks. God longs for us to be with him in relationship and his love for us flows out of what he provides for us, what he proclaims and blesses us with that is perfect. The difficulty is, the difficulty is we sometimes fail to see it, don't we? Because we're human, weak, sinful, Fail to see it, remember it, live in it, give thanks to him for it. 
we want to close by singing about the goodness of God. This song talks about how all my life God has been faithful. Just the continual, the continuum, if you will, of the goodness of God. How it started at creation, it moves forward and finds you know, fruition and fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ, and it continues into eternity. My prayer is that Genesis chapter 2 will be uh, a beautiful reminder of that truth. Like I said, re- reread it again with a different lens perhaps than you have had for a while. Let the beautiful truth of how much he loves you and I speak to you as you do that. Let's pray together.